Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Eldon Taylor. Welcome to another hour dedicated to the notion of enlightenment. An hour for inquiry and reflection, all in an effort to understand exactly what enlightenment means and what it is to be enlightened. An hour devoted to exploring the edge of consciousness and all that is implied thereof, and an hour that recognizes the nature of the subjective experience as being at least as important as the objective reality we reside within. Indeed, an hour for those who are unflinching in their journey to the authentic self and willing to examine their deepest beliefs and perhaps challenge some of those old ideas about the world we live in and the people we may have become. This is an hour where we strive to evaluate knowledge as inseparable from the total experience of reality. I'm Eldon Taylor, and this is Provocative Enlightenment. All right, our chat room opens the moment our show goes live, so you can join my partner, Ravinder, there now. She is here in the studio with me to monitor our chat room and see that your comments and questions get on the air. You can log on by going to Eldon Taylor, E-L-D-O-N-T-A-Y-L-O-R dot com forward slash chat. As Ravinder will say, never forget the forward slash chat. Okay, Rav, time for your line. Say hello to everyone. Never forget the forward slash chat. (laughs) Most certainly come join the party. It's warming up really nicely in there, and uh, we would love to see you there. All right. Each week I read a few of your letters as our way of paying respect to the importance you play in helping us to shape our show and improve it in every way. Last week our guest was Professor of Neurology, Dr. Kevin Nelson, and we reviewed his near-death research and conclusion that the brain is biologically wired in such a way to provide for NDE and OBE experiences. In other words, there is a mechanical-like or organic basis that can offer an explanation Uh, to at least some of this phenomenon. Uh, Todd wrote, I listened to your show with Dr. Nelson. He did not seem to support the idea that NDEs are real. He just wants to put it all down to biology. You surprised me and went along with him. I'm disappointed in you. Okay, Todd, there seems to be some real misunderstanding here. The fact is... Both Dr. Nelson and I believe in alternate realities. We both spoke of William James and his acknowledgement of the supernatural and our respect for him, his findings, and our, you know, our, our, our shared views with that respect. Now, that said, science does offer explanations for a variety of matters. So we have the theory of evolution, and nothing in that theory states that man does or does not survive the death of the physical body. Indeed, arguably, the whole notion of the Big Bang, singularity, as Stephen Hawking uh, puts it, somehow dividing itself and creating everything is not at all unlike the various creation epics that exist in most of the sacred literature from around the world. In the beginning, there was only God, singularity, and God divided himself, singularity divided itself, creating all things, from no thing, everything. Now, if you are convinced the entire universe, Todd, came into being just 7,000 years ago, and that according to a 24-hour clock, well, that's up to you. But please don't call your belief science or based on science or scientific in any way, shape, or form. Let's take this notion a little further. Imagine 10,000 years ago a being with a simple flashlight. This being will definitely be recognized as a god when who turns light on and off in their hand. 
Today, we would laugh at that because we understand the technology. If one of our earlier guests, Giorgio Sukalos, is correct, then ancient peoples worshipped ancient aliens. Would you do the same today? I mean, if a spaceship landed on Earth, would you call out, God has arrived? Analogically, the study of the brain affords us no more or less than the same opportunity we have when we study electricity or propulsion. We are not examining the why, but the how of things. How the brain might produce a dream or a NDE is what Dr. Nelson's work is focused upon. Not why is the brain wired in such a way as to produce a religious experience or its possible meaning and ramifications thereof. The fact that we have some understanding of the brain with respect to dreams does not begin to explain how some dreams can be precognitive or special in other ways. Some NDEs have been precognitive as well. Our understanding of REM may inform us of how the brain produced this phenomenon, but not why, nor does our understanding of the brain in any way diminish the power of the dream or identify its ultimate source. Our job is to sort through the dreams. Some may be important and others may not. If you see Elvis in an NDE, that's not likely to be something most people see. It's likely to be something a psychologist would explain. So now, Todd, let me unpack this just a bit more because you have hit upon a sensitive matter for me, including, you know, a, a number of other people that that I'm aware of that find this to be the kind of issue that just rubs its burr, if you will. And that's a misuse of science. Uh, I see you looking, Ravinder. I know that you have this same problem. And I we did. live with physicists and have physicists in our family. And so we encounter this regularly. Todd, there are people that use words, the language of science, put them into sentences and then make deductions that simply do not fit, like... Well, let's invent an example. I have, as a premise, the Fibonacci sequence. So premise A, ratios of successive Fibonacci numbers approaching the golden ratio demonstrate pattern. Premise B, ratios of alternate Fibonacci numbers are given by the convergence Therefore, conclusion C, Fibonacci numbers establish divine existence. Now, this is pure nonsense. It's a piece of baffle gab. Using terminology to argue a point is only valid if the point logically follows from the premises, and that necessarily involves the meaning of the terminology. If you have listened to provocative enlightenment, then you know that I am not above dismissing someone that abuses science. You don't need science to prove spirituality any more than you need spirituality to prove science. That said, I do believe that they can be handmaidens, but only if genuinely treated with the highest integrity for both. I cannot objectively experience your subjective experience. However, I can objectively evaluate what you report as your experience. Dr. Nelson was quick to admit that just because we can observe the brain with our technology in action does not equate to observing the subjective experience that the brain is manifesting. 
In other words, seeing the area of the brain that lights up when smelling a rose is not smelling a rose. Accepting that the brain can produce A-N-D-E or O-B-E via REM, as Nelson asserts, is not disqualifying the value of the experience or the possibility that some experiences are indeed the axiom-breaking white crows that Nelson and I discussed. All right, enough of my diatribe. Back to our letters. Sherry wrote, did I hear correctly? Do animals have spiritual experiences as well? Excellent observation, Sherry, and a point that was probably missed by many. The answer is our animal friends have the same brain mechanisms and have been observed having those experiences or at least those mechanisms lighting up, to use the words of of uh, MRI, PET, and therefore probably the same potential as humans. This is a most provocative point. I like the idea personally. Elaine wrote, great show today. Now that's pithy. Thank you, Elaine. Kevin wrote, how would the guest explain all the instances where someone is clinically dead, floats above and can't tell you about the exact details of what was happening in the room that they never could have seen otherwise? Well, Kevin, uh, I, I would imagine Dr. Nelson would first point to the story of Jan that we discussed early in the show. Jan had most of these same experiences because she was fully conscious, but due to paralytic drugs, unable to let the physicians know that she could feel and see everything. Jan was in a near-death state uh, while this transpired. Dr. Nelson might suggest that our minds, our brains, are capable of providing all of the details, just as Jan's mind did. On the other hand, we can always be alert to the white crow. If Dr. Lerma is right and a patient of his did indeed see something that was genuinely impossible to view from his position, and remember this was a quarter high up on some medical equipment that Dr. Lerma had to get a ladder or a stool in order to stand on and discover, then another white crow advances, violating the so-called axiom that all crows are black. So the argument isn't that NDEs aren't real. The argument is some of them may just not be more than a dream. All right. Jen wrote, I emailed Hay House Radio and told them how much I enjoy the show in the chat room. Well, thank you very much, Jen, and we're truly glad you enjoy our program. And Rav loves you to enjoy that chat room. I do, I do. Now, Taylor wrote, you're going to love this one, Ravinder. Ravinder, you are so savvy and sweet, darn smart, as we all know. And you even managed to call Eldon, hmm, was that teddy bear softly on this week's show? You are adorable and a great example of how to treat a man. Ever think of doing a book on how to treat your man? All right, Rav, you're indeed adorable. There's no no question on that one. That's a given, but you must knock off this teddy bear stuff. And you really could write that book. So uh, my teddy bear. what have you, you got to say for yourself? Say. Writing a book, I think what I would write would most certainly be controversial and very, very provocative. My views are totally different to what most people talk about out there. So who knows? Well, maybe that's the reason you should write that book. <laughs> All right. Sandy wrote, thank you, thank you, thank you for your wonderful radio show. Your guests are amazing and your viewpoint is profound. Please continue the work 
uh, that you do. Well, thank you very much for the feedback, Sandy, and we love doing it, so we're glad you enjoy. Finally, Elizabeth wrote, my son was having the serious problems in school. He has ADHD, and while he is extremely smart, he had a terrible time. I got him the Intertalk Self-Esteem CD, and he listened to it before bed for about a year and a half. Within the first month, we saw a difference in his behavior and attitude. By the time he finally decided to stop listening to it, he loved going to school and it built some really healthy friendships there as well. Really and truly, your Intertalk CDs are life-changing and worth every penny. Well, thank you, Elizabeth. You just gave me my warm fuzzy for the day. All right, that's all the time we're going to take for letters, but I do invite you to opine by sending your email to Eldon at eldentaylor.com or by joining me on Facebook. You can also just leave comments on my website. I do try to read all of your letters. Obviously, we can't get them all on the air, but they do impact our programming. I highly value your input, so once again, thank you, all of you, for your feedback and comments. Okay, last week, we learned that the brain is wired in such a way as to provide an explanation for much of the NDE literature. Trying to find well-documented cases that absolutely represent our white crows, well, that's our task. So in our continued search for certainty, today we turn to the quantum, or at least some interesting ways of interpreting the impact of the quantum on spirituality. Our subject today, how science proves there is an afterlife. Dr. T. Lee Bauman, M.D., is the author of Non-Denominational Quantum Spirituality, a lay manual for hospice patients and their families, How Science Proves There is an Afterlife. And he joins us to discuss the physics of life and life after death and the whole matter of a spiritual being, including some interesting insights into what most would call God. Dr. Bauman has appeared in the documentaries The Evidence for Heaven and The Search for Heaven, he is a prolific writer and a, an excellent writer. You will enjoy reading his books as much as, uh, I mean, I really enjoyed reading the books. They're a great read. Uh, and he's the author of several other books, including God of the Speed of Light, At the Speed of Light, The Melding of Science and Spirituality, Window to God, A Physician's Spiritual Pilgrimage, The Akashic-like Religion's Common Thread, I'm going to have to get that one. And the Seagull Project. In his book, God at the Speed of Light, Dr. Bauman shares many NDE stories, so he may indeed be able to provide a few more good white crows like that of Dr. Lermis. Dr. Bauman is a medical consultant in Birmingham, Alabama. In addition to his years in private practice, he has been a medical administrator and a biology instructor. So let's welcome our guest to Provocative Enlightenment. Welcome, Dr. T. Lee Bauman. Well, thank you, Eldon, and hi to you, Rav. Uh, it's a pleasure to be on your show, and please just uh, refer to me as Lee. I don't like formality. All right, sir. We're happy to do that. It, it is our pleasure to have you on the show. We're really looking forward to this. You heard in the setup piece uh, uh, my discussion about last week's conversation. So I have two questions before we move on to the subject of your book, if we may. First, what do you think of the explanation put forward by neurologist Dr. Kevin Nelson, that there is a biological explanation for NDEs, and it's all tied up with REM. And second, do you have a few white crows that you could share with us today? Well, well I do. Um, I, I agree to a certain extent with Dr. Nelson. I think most of us have to admit our not having all the answers, and I, I think... It is not just a simple fact to be able to say that 
certain areas of the brain uh, or certain chemicals or certain uh, electrical reactions cause NDEs. I think we know that the brain is so complex that we're really just on the threshold of even beginning to understand how it works. We know that certain drugs, certain electrical stimulation seems to trigger NDE-like experiences. From that standpoint, all I can really deduce is that those interactions with the brain somehow open the door so that we are able to have that experience without actually, you know, entering the threshold of, uh, of dying. So that that's my naive or simple uh, explanation for uh, you know for if I may add to that correlations. I, I'm sorry. If I say if I may add to that and and ask you for your opinion, it is my opinion that since the brain is hardwired in the way it is for religious experience, and it isn't just uh, this kind of research where we we can invoke an NDE, but there are areas of the brain where when electronically stimulated, you have deep religious experiences as a kind Plotinus described, that indeed, because we are hardwired in that way, that 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 is question begging. I mean, it predisposes that what we have to do is learn to be a religious or atheist because we're not wired that way. That's my take on that. What do you think of that idea? Yeah, I, I think that's a great explanation. Uh, I, I can certainly uh, relate to that in my own spiritual growth. Uh, I was raised as a Christian. I went to a summer camp where our the counselor in our cabin basically taught us that there was not a God, and yes, you heard that right, was not mm. a God, and this was actually a Christian summer camp, if you can believe it. Uh, no. So so between that and then going through my medical training and chemistry and biology backgrounds in college, I, I basically uh, did unlearn what uh, my parents had uh, raised me to be, and that was a good Christian. So in the mid-1970s, I did indeed find myself an atheist. You know, and lots of young people do that today because academia seems to encourage a sort of intellectual elitism that follows in the path of, of what, the God delusion, I suppose. Yeah. Uh, it, but, all right, I don't want to, we, we, you and I could talk about that one for a long time. Oh, Give we us could. a couple of good examples, if you will, of our white crow NDEs. Well, I have a couple, uh, but, but, Actually, Eldon, as you are well aware, so many are just rehashes of similar NDE stories. The corroboration, the fact that uh, researchers can go into observations during the out-of-body experience and talk to those who were involved in, uh, in the actual scenes that the NDE experience are related and they could then confirm, you know, that, yes, this took place, even though it be miles and miles distant from the scene of the actual cardio resusc- cardiopulmonary resuscitation. One of my favorites is uh, the story of a gentleman who was involved in a car accident. He was pronounced dead and woke up and found himself in cold storage in the hospital morgue. He lay there documented for three days in cold storage. During this time, he 
underwent a near-death experience. And what he related was that he found that he was able, you know, to travel miles from uh, the scene of the hospital. He found himself at his neighbor's home. Now, his neighbors, as it turned out, had a young infant who was always irritable, crying, fussy, whatever adjective you want to use. The child could never be calmed down, could never sleep uh, well at night, and the parents were just beside themselves. What this gentleman found was he was able to telepathically communicate with this young infant. And in doing so, the infant basically told him that he had this severe pain in one of his arms. Well, as the gentleman, uh, just before the autopsy was to take place, the uh, pathologist noted that indeed he was still alive and one thing led to another and he was ultimately uh, taken to surgery and, you know, the re- you know, the rest of the story after that, he uneventfully uh, recovered, but he had quite a story to tell. He must have been quite reticent to relate this story to his neighbors because this was back at at a time when no one had even heard of near-death experiences and you were always hesitant to talk about them because people would think you were crazy. I I think with a lot of tact, he finally broached the subject with his neighbors and whether they thought he was crazy or not, the next time they were at the uh, pediatrician's, they asked him to examine the child's arm. Uh, pain was listed in one arm, an x-ray was taken, and to make a long story short, they found the arm was broken. Once the arm was set and the healing took place, the child was a normal child again. Uh, so, so this is just one of you know many such stories. There's a story of a uh, social worker in a hospital who talked to a young girl who had had an NDE. The young girl had seen uh, a pair of sneakers out on one of the ledges of the hospital. And it took several days of the social worker, you know, looking out in various uh, windows of the hospital, finally going to a whole different uh, wing of the hospital, and indeed found the exact described uh, sneakers out on a ledge that this girl could never have seen unless. Her spirit was truly out of her body, quite a distance from the scene of her uh, CPR. Uh, So it's stories like these that really convinced me. I know one of of the first things I did when I was studying the near-death experience, because I'm your ultimate skeptic. For me, it's science or nothing. Okay. Uh, And after, you know, having been through my childhood and uh, being convinced that there was not a God, I think that is part of the reason why, for me, it's it's been science or nothing. Uh, and when you look at these NDEs and you look at the ones that could possibly have been caused by drugs, could possibly have been caused by oxygen deprivation, and all the other excuses that we've always heard, I eliminated those NDEs. And I was left with several with good corroborative evidence, such as what I just related to you. Mm-hmm. And I know as a physician, I would do CPR on a select group of patients. 
And as soon as you stopped the chest compressions, the patient was out cold. They were completely comatose. But as soon as you restarted those chest compressions, the patient had some functional alertness. They were combative. They were actually vocal to some extent. And they were trying to, you know, get you to stop this uh, right. this technique that you were practicing on their chest for good reason. And okay, so I was well, impressed you, with the fact that... We've got a hard break coming up. So yes. let's pick this up, uh, you know, when we come back from Certainly. the break. Excellent. Uh, I agree with you. There are hard white crows. So the axiom that all crows are black falls, if what you're saying is there's no such thing as NDEs. They're all just a product of, of neurology. Okay, you're listening to Provocative Enlightenment. My guest today is Dr. T. Lee Bauman. His book, Quantum Spirituality, check it out. We have the links all at my site. We'll be back after just these words, for a few words, I guess, from our friends. So be sure to stay tuned. Close your eyes. Imagine your goals and dreams. What's preventing you from accomplishing them? Most often, we are our own worst enemies. I can't. I'm not good enough. It's time to reprogram that inner dialogue. Replace all those negative self-images with, I'm good. I am powerful. I can do anything. Eldon Taylor's InnerTalk patented subliminal technology does just that. Researched at numerous universities such as Stanford and by governments such as Mexico and Germany, InnerTalk has repeatedly been proven effective at changing your self-talk. Stop imagining your goals and make them a reality today. Visit www.intertalk.com. That's I-N-N-E-R-T-A-L-K.com. Intertalk.com. Do you feel like you've become lost in a funhouse? Only seeing the reflection of yourself, past, future, and present, but unable to find the real you, I invite you to step through the doorway and onto the path leading to understanding of your mind, your choices, and the influences that surround you. Read Elton Taylor's New York Times best-selling book, Choices and Illusions. Now expanded, updated, and revised, it will provide you with real-life examples of how you can break free from your current perceptions and begin your journey to how high is up. Get your copy today from all bookstores or online from Amazon.com or Barnes & Noble. Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Eldon Taylor. Welcome back. If you just joined us, we're discussing with Dr. T. Lee Bauman his book, Non-Denominational Quantum Spirituality, How Science Proves There is an Afterlife. But before we get back to today's show, I want to invite you to like our Facebook fan page for Provocative Enlightenment Radio. As a fan of the show, you will receive special announcements and incentives from time to time as our way of thanking you for your support. I would also like to invite you to join me on Facebook while you're there, and of course, you can follow me on Twitter. 
Let's get back to the show. Before the break, we were discussing some white crows, as we call them, um, NDEs that for you know all intent and purposes defy explanation by any other means. Uh, did you want to add anything that, uh, Dr. Bauman, before we continue? Well, I guess I would just add, Eldon, that uh, we, we were discussing, or I was discussing, how CPR, when done effectively, is, is very efficient. And when you dismiss any of the medical cases which may well have been caused, NDEs I'm talking about, may well have been caused through drugs or oxygen deprivation, you are still left with a subset where all the elements of the NDE are really no different than those that you've just excluded. So I, as a physician, I do not feel that drugs, oxygen deprivation, or a lot of the other excuses or arguments that I've heard are really good explanations. In fact, I ask my audiences and listeners to recall, for those that have undergone general anesthesia, to recall if when you undergo general anesthesia, if you've ever seen the element of light. And I honestly have to speak to anyone yet, and I'm sure there's there are some out there, but I have yet to speak to anyone who, when they've undergone general anesthesia, have seen light instead of darkness. So as a physician, I just can't buy the fact that, uh, you know, that it's, it's caused because of right. their arguments. I think the real question for me is, uh, why is the brain wired that way? I mean, what, what, yes. what is the purpose of the hardwiring? That's where we should be going. Exactly. That is at least my view. But all right. Now, your books are enjoyable. I, I've stated okay. that, and, and I love your, your writing style. You use some logic to come to certain conclusions that may give rise to questioning some assumptions, though. So let me try this out on you, okay? You equate God with light on the basis of the common story told in various creation epics where God and light are interconnected with creation. Connecting... The understanding of ancient peoples, though, with the nature of their agriculture might just as well make this same connection. In this event, the birth of the sun, S-U-N, and the nature of God could both be easily equated um, with the light of of the system or the S-U-N. Thus, could we not then think of the vernal equinox in the days of ancient Mesopotamia uh, when the 25th day of December marked the rebirth of the S-U-N and couldn't we, you know, just kind of continue with that line of thinking because we do anoint that day as the birth of the S-O-N. So I guess my point is straightforward. If the premise in our logic is false, that is the connection of God and light or sun uh, versus, say, the birth of the S-U-N, which is important to our agricultural culture, then how, how do you answer this line of thinking? Excellent question, Eldon. I'm I'm glad you asked because uh, you you know I've certainly read those those philosophies, those arguments, and they're all valid. I mean, you, you can't argue against them. What I found as an atheist was when I read about the NDE, Raymond Moody's first book, Life After Life. Right. I, I was struck with the medical study nature of the book, and it had a lot of credibility for me. 
I then became interested in quantum mechanics uh, because I found something almost paranormal or supernatural when physicists began to describe physical light. And you had Nobel Prize winning physicists using terms like impossible and shocking. And even Einstein spent many years of his life trying to disprove a lot of quantum physical concepts because they made no sense to him. Right. Uh, what I was struck with, and my corollary between light and the possibility of, of a divine being, is that physicists describe physical light using the terms omnipresent, omniscient, omnipotent, and they even throw in a fourth term, conscious, which again are terms I didn't come up with. These are terms that physicists came up with. And at some, point begin, <laughs> at some point you begin to think, well, okay, light does have some incredible characteristics. I mean, light exists outside of time. We know that time stops if you can travel at the speed of light. And there are a lot of examples and physical experiments and whatnot. We also know how is God or Christ or a deity often visualized in the NDE as beings of light. And I think at some point, and this was uh, this brought about the book, The Akashic Light, was I basically studied or researched uh, deities of every religion across the planet. And as you mentioned, the Egyptians worshipped the sun, and so did the Incas and Mayans and, and you know, American Indians, and it goes on and on. But I am questioning whether they weren't instead worshiping the light, you know, and, and obviously there's a relationship between the sun and light. Right. Every major religion on the planet describes God or the major deity for polytheistic religions in terms of light. Uh, there are very few that do not, and we're talking Hindu, Islam, Christianity, uh, Judaism, uh, and it you know, Chinese, uh, traditional, your African tribal, the American Indians, they all worshipped a god that they described in terms of light. And I yeah, think at some creation... point... I'm sorry? No, that's okay. I, I was just going to say, in the creation epics, typically all of them refer to light as the, the first step in the creation. Well, they do, although I think there are certainly valid arguments that when you read Genesis that uh, you can say that the light that's described as one of the first creation elements in Genesis was actually made by the divine creator, and you know you're not you're not equating the two. So uh, so so there are valid arguments to flatten what what I am theorizing, but I think at some point in time I had to question whether when Christ said, "I am the light of the world." and Moses saw God up on the mountain as this intense, blinding light, whether those descriptions were not actually literal instead of metaphorical. So, okay, so that was kind of how I pieced my puzzle together. All right, great. Let's, let's get a little deeper into this, okay? Certainly. I was particularly impressed with your explanation of God as in, Implicit in Einstein's energy mass equation. Share that with us. Unpack that with our for our audience, will you? Yes. Well, Einstein's E equals mc squared. That's what you're right. referring to. Uh -huh. um, th there are a lot of different ways that that can be viewed 
uh, spiritually. One is that there's a theory, and right now it's just a theory, known as uh, proton decay, which basically states that protons are the mass or matter uh, depicted by the M in the equation. Light would then be the pure energy or the E in the equation. And this theory argues that at the end of all time, when the universe disintegrates and decomposes, which we do have examples of it now, that, and this is billions and billions and billions and billions of years from now, that the only remaining uh, entity, uh, whether it be wave or particle, is going to be light. And so that, you know, that's your uh, theoretical ultimate depiction of the E equals MC squared uh, Einstein equation. So yeah, but this this becomes a, a a very important point for well actually it's the basis for the rest of of your your theorizing because if I understand correctly uh, it is an understanding that energy and mass are absolutely interchangeable yes. that ultimately all mass becomes energy that energy is light that we get to the conclusions that we are all a part of that light or light wave energy light consciousness uh, and I don't want to I don't want to put words in your mouth but isn't no, that the I under- absolutely agree so, so uh, this is the underlying assumption that because of that and the correlation with light, that the quintessential, and I use that word for absence of a better word, the quintessential uh, stuff that is uh, underlies all of creation itself is energy or light. I think so, yes. Okay. In your book, you discuss the three omnis, and you just alluded to those briefly. But, yes. um, yeah, I have to tell you, one of them was a little tough for me. And, and that was, and, and it's probably due to the nature of our language. I've always looked at that. You know, I, the great fan of, of Soren Kierkegaard. Uh, and his theistic existential philosophy, because I, I I I do understand that if if we know something, there isn't there is you know if we knew for sure that there was a God, uh, there would be no way for us to conduct ourselves with faith. There would yeah. be no way for us to trust in that which we didn't didn't know. And so there is great value in that in that uncertainty. Um, I, I've always, you know, looked at some of these conflicts, you know, the omni this and that descriptions with God and thought of them as as being bound up with language problems. So you, you, but you discuss it in the sense of light. So omnipresent, well, light is everywhere. But omnipotent, you know, I mean, I, I get these childlike questions in my head. Can God build a rock so large he can't lift it? I understand. I understand. Um, Isn't that just a language problem? I think so. I, I, there are two ways that I tell listeners to uh, think about omnipotence. One, if you take the first two omnis, the fact that light is uh, theoretically everywhere at one time mm-hmm. in the universe, and the second omni, that if you were that light particle and you were everywhere in the universe at one time, you'd know everything that was going on in the universe. And so that, mm-hmm. that 
then leads to the omniscient omni. Right. What I tell most listeners is, look, if you're everywhere in the universe, and we know how big that is, and you're all-knowing, you know, that, that that is pretty phenomenal, that it's probably not too great a leap to then go on to omnipotence. But the actual quantum physical part of that argument is uh, through probably the major term is re-normalization, R-E, the word normal, isation at the end. And if mm-hmm. your listeners want, wanted to look that up at, on the Internet, that would be my recommendation because it's a fairly complex uh, concept. But what it states is that in the past, when physicists first started attempting to uh, decide the energy levels of quantum particles like electrons or atoms, they were coming up with infinities. The resulting equation was leading to infinities. And the result of that was the contribution of light to the electron. Uh, So that's just a very simplistic explanation so that I don't go on for hours uh, on the topic. So um, you're equating omnipotent with infinity? With infinite energy, yes. Okay, all right. Well, I I, I still think there are just some things that lexically cannot be communicated. (laughs) Well, and and I I would bend to that uh, argument because I, I, I understand that. Okay, all right. Now, you probably heard in the setup piece, Ravinder and I talking about the physicists in our families. I did. I, I mean, we have lots of them, and we have, you know, everybody, see, everybody in the family seems to want to be a doctor of physics nowadays. Yeah. Uh, including my wife has got this pretty smile on her face. Ravinder is my wife, Lee. Uh, her... Uh, Niece is uh, finishing her PhD. We'll have it finished this year at Cambridge uh, in physics. Wow! And her uh, fiance is finishing his PhD in mathematics at Princeton. So, well, they're you know, a team. Uh, yeah, but and, and we hear this all the time. And our son is he's on his way too. So, you speak of an experiment with light that shows how it knows. I'm going to put that word in quotes. Right. Beforehand, you compare this with pouring water into container on the floor. And just as you pour the container, just as you as you're pouring, the container is moved. And yet somehow the water or in, in that's in the analogy. Right. In reality, the light waves in the experiment change their behavior and angled themselves to land in the container. Exactly. I have that basically as you describe exactly. it. Exactly. And that was what okay. led Richard Feynman and uh Niels Bohr, you know, two Nobel Prize winning physicists, to use terms like impossible and shocking, because as humans being trapped within the dimension of time, we're left scratching our heads saying this is impossible, but it's not possible for light. Well, and I'm going to tell you, my physicist acquaintances say, what what study is that? Where, Where did that come from? Oh, that's the quantum eraser experiment. And there quantum are quantum many... eraser. Experiment. Share share the the experiment and its meaning, its impact on on your thesis uh, with us yeah. all, if you will. Oh, I'd be happy to. It's it's certainly one of my favorite experiments. Uh, a single photon. So you realize this is a complex, highly technologic experiment. Researchers shoot a single photon or light wave into the beginning of the experiment. 
Now, the beginning or the experiment has three components: a beginning, a middle, and an end. So the the photon or light wave goes in the beginning of the experiment. They the researchers know the paths it will take in the middle of the experiment, and at the end of the experiment, the light wave is counted by a photon counter, basically. So okay. you've got those three sections of the experiment. Now, a variation of the experiment uh, occurs when the researchers place particular pieces of glass in front of the photon detectors, and this is at the very end of the experiment. Now, by doing this totally innocent uh, change in the experiment, uh, people like, uh, well, people prior, prior to Einstein would have said, look, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to know if you alter the end of the experiment, nothing is going to change in the beginning of the experiment or the middle of the experiment. But right. yet, light alters its behavior in the middle of the experiment because of changes made at the end of the experiment. It makes absolutely no sense. And it's only until you realize that time does not exist for the light wave, and that it actually alters its behavior or its paths retroactively in time, do you realize that the experiment makes any sense? And even then, you're still left scratching your head. Delayed choice quantum eraser. Incredible. I'm reading about it as you're talking about it. Absolutely yeah. incredible. Oh, so, it is. So from this, we can attribute uh, what, I guess, absence, again, of a better word, consciousness to light. Well, physicists applied that term to light in that particular experiment because they described light as altering its behavior. So they were kind of uh, giving human attributes to physical light. They used the word conscious. Uh, they probably could have come up with a better term. They, they, yeah, they really hate the anthropomorphize, but, <laughs> but what else could you call it? That's, that's incredible. Well, well, exactly. And when you look at other experiments which show how our universe is connected from one end to the other by this network of electromagnetic radiation, that uh, you realize that it makes a lot of sense. It, it really fits into the picture quite well. I know this. If I knew anyone that was concerned about whether or not they had an afterlife, uh, your book, Non-Denominational Quantum Spirituality, uh, I would I would see that they had this book. I mean, this is well, this is you. a book that every hospice center ought to be passing out. It's just a, it's a great great book. Oh, but okay, great. now. Getting in, going a little further now. So we're proceeding along this logic. What we have is, of course, we are light beings. Physics argues for that. Light itself is conscious. Light itself is omni-everything, as we have discussed. Uh, now, you then take some steps to talk about the teleology of our world. The great philosopher and ex-atheist, uh, whom I'm a fan of, Anthony Flew, came to the same conclusion as you did about the nature of of the creation of our world. He found, you know, the whole idea of the, of the matter of this being some fluke randomness to be ridiculous, as you do. And I discuss that also in one of my books, Choices and Illusions, because we just simply didn't have the material to construct the first DNA molecule. It didn't exist, and only DNA can create DNA. But you dedicated an entire chapter, and you really... 
you really take this apart mathematically, scientifically, unpack that for us, will you? Oh, no, I'd be happy to. I, In fact, your readers should probably, or your listeners rather, should realize that this particular book we're talking about is very short. It's large print. I've tried to simplify detailed and complex quantum experiments down to just very simple lay terms, and I, and I hope I've uh, been successful at that. But You have. Well, it is a great you. read. I can't say that too many times. Well, thank you. Well, what I really love about when you look into the complexity of DNA and all the molecules which are derived from DNA, and, of course, you're talking about DNA uh, causes its own duplication. Uh, DNA basically creates DNA. DNA creates another uh, molecule known as RNA, uh, and all of these molecules are very complex, very integral to life itself. These molecules then cause the production of complex protein molecules, and for anyone who's ever seen just a complex protein molecule, it is so complicated. I think it took one of the supercomputers almost a year to find how one complex protein folded in on itself. And every fold of a protein is very vital to how it interacts with other chemicals, uh, you know, within a cellular uh, living cell. So it's not just a simple thing to say that you know, DNA was derived by happenstance, whether it be on an asteroid or a comet or these uh, pools that uh, first began on planet Earth in its early years. It's, you know, it, it's the typical coin toss 10,000 times, and when the coin keeps coming up head after 10,000 tosses, at some point you have to decide that either it's a faulty two-headed coin or that design was right. implicit within the result. Dr. Bauman, we're out of time, you know, and, 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 and I'm going to have to bring you back to the show. I hope you're willing to do oh, that. I, I am, although it's hard to shut me up, you know. So, so many great books that you've written. I love your insight. Tell our listeners, if you will, quickly how they can reach you, your website, uh, and so forth. Well, thank you for asking. My website is www.google.com. That's Google as in search engine, forward slash profiles. That's profiles, plural, forward slash, and then it's T. Lee Bauman, and Bauman is B-A-U-M-A-N-N, two ends at the end. Lee is simply L-E-E. There are no periods or hyphens or lines uh, in there at all. Uh, and that link actually lists all my books where you can purchase them. It has a direct link. All right. To my- we are out of time. And I have links at my site, so all of you go there. The books are great. You will enjoy them. They are fun. Well, we've come to the end of another hour of Provocative Enlightenment. I want to thank you all for joining us today, and I hope you enjoyed our show. Join us again next week, same time, same place. Until then. Remember, wherever you are in the world, believing in yourself always matters.